If you have a Bible, turn it to Romans chapter number one. That's where we're going to be continuing this morning. Romans chapter number one. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses eight through 15, which are still technically considered to be a part of the introduction of the book. Now, Paul isn't necessarily introducing himself anymore as much as he is sharing his heart for the church at Rome. I, I've titled the message this morning, Paul's Love for Rome. Because in these few verses, we see Paul's heart for this church. We see Paul's heart for ministry. And this is a great way that we get to kind of peek into who is the Apostle Paul? What makes him tick? What drives him? What motivates him? And these verses are going to demonstrate that for us. In these eight verses, we see Paul's love for the church. And it also can serve as a picture or a model for what it looks like for our church to love each other and to have a passion for our faith. Now, to see these verses in their larger context, as we do every week, we're going to read all of chapter number one. Now, as we've seen the last few weeks, uh, chapter one ends on a bit of a heavy note. Uh, but we aren't going to avoid the difficult or awkward parts of the scripture as we read through the scripture each and every week. I believe it's important to read the entire chapter that we are in so we can see the larger context of what's going on in this part of the Bible. And also so that week in and week out, we can just saturate our minds in the scriptures. As we take these next several months, maybe years, to work through the book of Romans, we want our minds to be saturated in it. We want our minds to be filled with the scriptures so that we can renew our minds with what God's word says. And I just want to thank you for being a church that loves the word of God. And thank you for being a church that's willing to listen to me read it to you every week and just follow along and see what God says. So if you have a Bible, Romans chapter number one, if you don't have one, there should be one somewhere next to you. There's a black hardback one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible and you would like one, just see me at the table on the back of the auditorium that says, uh, your next step starts here. I'd love to be able to give you a Bible and some other resources to help encourage your faith as you are seeking that. Uh, but let's read Romans chapter one, beginning in verse number one, the Bible says, Paul a servant of Jesus or Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, and telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. 
I am obligated both to the Greek and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what we can know about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurities so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust one for another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do so that they do what is not right they are filled with all unrighteousness evil greed and wickedness they are full of envy murder quarrels deceit and malice they are gossips slanderers god-haters arrogant proud boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that your word would be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty. Father, I don't know all the burdens that people carried as they came into service this morning or are watching online with us this morning. Lord, we know it's Mother's Day, and we know that day often brings a unique set of hurts or feelings, rejoicing or sadness. So we do pray that despite whatever we came into this room feeling this morning, that your word would be a proclamation of good news, that your word would be a proclamation of healing and liberty. 
I pray that your spirit would open our minds to understand and contemplate the wondrous things from your word that we're going to consider this morning. I pray that you would give us life and strength through your word this morning. And I pray that your church would delight in your instruction, that we would delight in your word, and that it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we would be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams, bearing fruit to your glory. Amen. As Paul continues the introduction of his letter, uh, he tells the church at Rome how he has been thanking God for them and praying for them. Now, this is something that Paul would regularly do throughout the New Testament. We see him do this in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. This is not something that Paul was only doing here at the church of Rome. In fact, he would often tell the churches that he was writing how he was so incredibly thankful for them. And every time that I read about Paul saying how he was thankful or how he was consistently praying for these churches, it challenges me every time, and it shows us that Paul's love was evident through his constant prayers. Paul's love was evident through his constant prayer. Even though Paul had never been to this church, even though many of the people there he did not personally know, he had a deep love for this local church. And Paul's love for this church, which he had never been to, I believe, came from his deep love and his deep care for the big C church, the body of Christ. We looked at that a few months ago in our series on church membership. Paul loved the body of Christ. Paul loved the big C church. In fact, he said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Paul had a deep care, this deep desire, this burden, this concern, not just for specific local churches, but for all of them. Paul loved the church, and that was consistently demonstrated by the way he constantly thanked God for them and constantly prayed for them. Now, Paul was very aware of the myriad of shortcomings that these churches often demonstrated. I mean, read the, first, the book of 1 Corinthians. You'll see they had a lot of big sin issues that they were working through, and yet Paul still prayed for them, and Paul still loved them, and Paul still had this deep care and concern for them, not because these churches were perfect or these churches were great, but because they were the body of Christ. And we see that evident by the way that he would pray and the way that he would thank God for them. And the phrase, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, is not some throwaway phrase or this spiritual filler text that Paul's just plugging in here to pad the letter. No, there's a lot of deep meaning in that phrase. Paul is demonstrating that the only reason he can thank God or pray to God at all is because of Jesus. When he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, what he's doing is, what he's acknowledging is, the only reason I can thank God, the only reason I can pray, the only reason I can go into the presence of God is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is our mediator with God the Father. Jesus is the reason we can go boldly into the throne room of God and pray. So as Paul is praying and thanking God for this church, he's acknowledging the only reason this is even a possibility for me is because of what Jesus has done. He was, he has, Jesus has made the way to God accessible to us, whether it be by prayer or whether we are praising. The reason we can gather together as a church family this morning and lift our voices and praise God as a prayer of song to God is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's owing to Jesus' mercy and grace that any of our service are acceptable to God. 
And it's no less proper to present thanks in his name and through him than it is in prayer. One of the things that God, or that Paul thanked God for concerning this church in Rome was their faith. Now, the Greek word for faith here, when he says your faith is being reported around the world, the Greek word here, it refers to trust or reliance. It's not talking about their faith as in their body of beliefs. It's referring to their faith as in the fact that they are trusting in Jesus. They are relying on Jesus. It's referring to their salvation. The Roman believers put their trust in God and accepted the gospel message and the news that there was people in Rome that were being saved, that there's forming this church. There's all these house churches that make up the church at Rome in this, in, in, in Rome the seat of all the wicked empire that the Roman Empire was, the news that there were believers in Rome was beginning to spread around the world. People were being saved in the capital of a wicked empire, and that made Paul excited. It made the church all over the known world excited. Why? Because God was working in Rome, (laughs) of all places. I mean, sometimes when we consider this passage and we're so far removed from the historical context, we forget what Rome would have been for these early Christians. Just a few short years before, the emperor kicked out all the Jews because of Christians. Rome was not friendly to their faith. Rome was not a place where it would have been safe to be a Christian, and yet God was working even in a wicked city like Rome. Last week, we shared an update from Akeem Smith at Storyline Church, and we saw that God was working in Oakland, California. Amen. Praise God. We can praise God that in the last six months here in our church, we've had over a dozen people officially join in membership. God is working in Fresno. That's a reason to praise God. That's a reason to, when you go before God the Father, say, God, I am praising you because of the sacrifice of Jesus for what you're doing here in our city and in our context. I'm going to praise you for what you're doing through our different missionaries. I'm going to praise you for what you're doing in the global church around the world. This demonstrates the power of the gospel and the reality that God can work in any type of environment. It doesn't need to be an environment that's friendly to our faith for God to work and to bless. In fact, oftentimes, God does his, what seems to be his best work in environments that are just the opposite. And the fact that there was a church in Rome, house churches meeting all around the city, just goes to prove that God can work and loves to work even in what seems to be the darkest of places. So as Paul prays for this church, it seems that the first thing he does is he rejoices in what God is doing. One of the best things we can do for our souls is to regularly thank God for the way he is working in our church and in other churches around the world. Let me encourage you to make that a priority this week. Take a few minutes. Think about and thank God for the ways you have seen him working. Get out a piece of paper if it'd be helpful and just write those things down. God, I'm thankful for the way you've preserved our church. I'm thankful for those that are committing in membership. I'm thankful for those that have been baptized. I'm thankful for the members who are recommitting themselves to this place. Thank you for the way that you're caring and sustaining our church. God, I thank you for what you're doing through our missionaries all around the world. God, I I thank you for the fact that you're, you're just doing so much. Take a few minutes, write those things down, and then out loud, praise God for those specific things. 
Now, that requires some intentionality on our part because our minds tend to default to what's negative, don't they? You get on social media or you watch the news and your mind is bombarded with all the problems that our world is facing. But as believers, we should be able to see all those problems and yet our faith should grow and increase because if God can work in Rome, God can work here too. So let's praise God for what he is doing. When we stop and intentionally look for what God is doing and then praise him for it, our hearts are lifted with gratitude. And Colossians actually tells us that that gratitude strengthens our faith. Verse 9 and verse 10 say, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news about his son. We're going to look at that phrase in just a moment. He says, God is my witness that I constantly mention you always, asking in my prayers. Now, the reason Paul says, God is my witness, is to show, as Albert Barnes said, he's showing to the Romans the deep interest in which he felt their, wa- their welfare. This interest was manifested, this concern, this love was manifested in his prayers and in his earnest desire to see them. A deep interest shown in this way was well fitted to prepare them to receive what he had to say for them, to them. And, that, and he says that he is constantly praying for them. That word constantly means at all times, always. It means always or without intermission. Now, this doesn't mean Paul never got up, up, up off his knees. It doesn't mean praying was the only thing Paul did. But what it does mean is that Paul was consistently praying for them. Paul could say, I always pray for you guys. It's consistent. It's constant. You're always in my heart. You're always in my prayers. Paul labored in prayer for these churches because he loved them. Because Paul mentions this multiple times throughout the New Testament, it's easy for us to quickly move past these verses in his introduction. But the fervency of Paul's prayer for the church provides a challenging example for us, doesn't it? Paul loved this church, and the expression of that love was prayer. As a pastor, this challenges me. For the believer, a genuine concern or care is manifested in consistent prayer. So the more we care about something the more we will pray for the object of our care. If you love your kids, you'll pray for your kids. If you love your spouse, you'll pray for your spouse. If you love your church, you'll pray for your church. So the questions I want to propose to us are, do we consistently pray for our local church? Look around the room. Do you consistently pray for the people that you see here this morning? Do you consistently pray for other churches in our area? Do you consistently pray for our missionaries? Uh, on, on the back wall, in the back, we have a, a church-wide prayer list. And on that prayer list, there's a list of the missionaries that we support. Do you pray for those missionaries who are spreading the gospel, like Paul, around the world in places that we can never get to? Now, Paul, part of Paul's prayers concerning this church was that God would allow him to finally get to Rome and to minister to this church. He wanted to go there to be encouraged. He wanted to go there to minister to his church and then he was, after he was encouraged and after he was able to minister to them and have a fruitful ministry there, he wanted the church at Rome to help him get the gospel into Spain. Paul mentions this later in the book of Romans in chapter number 15. Now these plans, these desires that Paul had for this type of ministry hadn't come to fruition yet. And Paul was currently, as he's writing the book of Romans, he's currently on his way to Jerusalem 
with an offering that he had collected from all the Macedonian churches. We looked at that when we studied the book of Philippians. He had collected this offering from the Macedonian churches to take to the poor in Jerusalem. And it seems that Paul had made getting to this church, the church at Rome, a matter of great prayer. But his prayers were also surrendered to God's will. I love how he says here, if it is somehow in God's will that I can finally get to you. That's what he says in verse 10. If it's somehow in God's will, I so desperately want to get to this church. I so desperately want to minister to them and so that they can encourage me and so that we can continue to advance the gospel now into Spain. So he has this earnest desire. He has these things that he's praying for that he wants to see happen, but it's also surrendered to the will of God. Because he's like, I've been praying and I've been praying, but it just hasn't happened yet. Now we know that Paul eventually does make it to Rome but it's as a prisoner, which was more than likely not the way he was praying God would get him there, right? But as we learn from the conclusion of the book of Acts, God did answer his prayer, and he was able to effectively minister even while he was under house arrest as a prisoner in Rome. Acts 28, 31 says that Paul was able to proclaim the kingdom of God in teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. They had a rented house for him that he was in under house arrest, and he was able, while he was under house arrest, to boldly spread the gospel, even in Rome. Now, while Paul desired to get to Rome because he had long-term ministry plans, he also just wanted to go and be with this church. He wanted to have fruitful ministry there, yes. Because Paul was, remember, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So if there's a Gentile populace, he wants to get there. He wants to spread the gospel. He wants to fulfill his ministry there. But we also see in these verses that he just wants to be with this church. We see also in Romans 15, verse 24, whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and be assisted by you for my journey there to Spain, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's got ministry plans, long-term ministry plans. But he also just wants to be with this church. As we see in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1. He says, I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Which leads us to our second thought this morning. Paul's love was, yes, evident through his constant prayer, but Paul's love was evident through his desire for fellowship. Paul wasn't merely wanting to be an, he wasn't merely wanting to have an effective ministry in the city of Rome, although he was. Paul was wanting to be encouraged himself. Paul was wanting to go to this church. He was wanting to be with them, to, to use a somewhat cliche phrase, to do life with them so that he can be encouraged, so that his life can be strengthened. Paul was seeking communion with these believers. He was in need of being edified. He was in need of being strengthened. He was in need of being comforted himself. This Greek word here in verse number 11, for encouraged, it's Sumparakleo, I think I said that right. Sumparakleo, which means to console jointly or to comfort together. In the Greek, this verb is in the passive voice, which means the subject is the receiver of the verbal action. So this shows us, because the subject of Paul's thoughts is himself and the church, this shows us that both Paul's and the Roman church's faith would be strengthened simply by their fellowship, simply by their being together, simply by them pursuing Jesus together. This would strengthen both of their faith. This would encourage 
both of their faith. This was how they could come together jointly and console one another in the Lord. Their joint presence would be mutually beneficial for their walk with Christ. What a great picture of what Christian fellowship is supposed to be, isn't it? It's not about me lording over you. It's not about any of us lording over any of us. It's about coming together as a family and encouraging one another in the Lord. What's also great about this word, is this Greek word, is that it has the same root, parakletos. Soon parakleo, the root word there is parakletos, which is the word often used to describe the Holy Spirit as our comforter or counselor. Parakletos means com- counselor, comforter, advocate, consoler. Now, I'm not bringing this up to suggest that Christian fellowship is the same as fellowship with the Holy Spirit, as if somehow hanging out with your buddies can replace walking in the Spirit. But I bring it up to help us understand the depth of genuine Christian fellowship. This is the type of encouragement that you can only get from other people who are walking in the Spirit and yielding to His leading. This isn't the type of comfort and encouragement you can get just by hanging out with your buddies at Wingstop watching the game. This isn't the same type of encouragement and comfort that you can get because you got a bunch of gym buddies who hang out once a week and you can all grunt and flex your muscles in the mirror together, right? This is so much deeper than that. This is the type of encouragement that you can only get from fellow believers in Christ who are walking in the Spirit. When we are jointly walking in the Spirit together as a church body, as fellow members of the body of Jesus, as we are jointly walking in the Spirit, there is a deep experience of comfort and encouragement that is the result of the Holy Spirit. We don't produce that comfort. We don't produce that encouragement. The Holy Spirit does it in us as we together yield to Him. And that's what Paul is looking for. Sometimes we underestimate the good something as simple as Christian fellowship can do for our sanctification. It encourages us and it strengthens us. This is partly why our weekly large gathering and our small group gatherings are so vital for our faith because when you get with other believers who are pursuing Jesus, who are walking with the Spirit, not not perfect, not 100% nailing it, but authentically and honestly seeking Jesus together, it strengthens your soul. When we see God working in each other's life, it strengthens our faith. And even though Paul was a leader and a missionary, and an apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, even though he was an apostle who had seen the risen Savior, he had seen Jesus appear to him on the Damascus Road, literally knocked him off his donkey and blinded him for multiple days. Even though he had seen all of that, he was still longing for time with his fellow believers. Paul was still needing that encouragement that he was, would get from this church. This shows us that all of us need to be an encouragement to others, but also that we need to be encouraged ourselves. We need to encourage others, and we need to be encouraged ourselves. So if you're involved in a small group, let me encourage you to find a way to bless your group leader. They pour into you on a regular basis, week in and week out. Let me encourage you to find a way you can get together as a group and say, we're going to bless our small group leader. Find someone who regularly pours into your life. Think through how you could be a blessing to them. And don't do this for me. I just want to be upfront. I'm not saying this because I want anything. You guys have been so generous and so good to my wife and I. Don't, 
don't do this right now for me. Find your small group leader. Find somebody else. If you're in my small group, go bless somebody else's small group leader, okay? Um, find somebody who regularly pours into your life and find, how can I be a blessing to them? Look around on a Sunday morning and see who's serving behind the scenes that I can be a blessing to. I'm so thankful for the many ways you guys in our small group have encouraged my wife and I these last six or seven months. Like we're just consistently blown away by how good you guys have been to us. It's such a huge blessing. It encourages our faith. As somebody who's on the well into the receiving side of it, I just want to say thank you, but this is real. This encourages people. So let me encourage you to look around. Find a leader in our church. Bless one of our deacons, Red and Jeremy. Find someone who's serving behind the scenes or think, who discipled me? Who, was, who, who, who greeted me when I first came to this church and made me feel welcomed? Who is serving behind the scenes on a regular basis? You can't go back into the kids' wing if you're not a scheduled volunteer this morning, but look, peek down there and see who's serving. Who is serving our body that I can go and bless? They're pouring into our church family. I want to go and pour into them because all of us need to be encouraged. Look for ways you can intentionally walk in fellowship together so you can experience the encouragement of the Spirit. There's something amazing about just having somebody over, a fellow believer, and spending time with them. Because there's that unity of the Spirit. Your spirit bears witness with their spirit, and it produces this comfort. It produces this encouragement. It produces this sense that I'm not alone. I'm part of the body of Jesus. Look for ways you can intentionally practice this this week. Paul's desire was not to simply show up and be the boss at this church. He wasn't going to show up and be like, all right, I've never been here, but I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. This church is in a Gentile city, so guess what? I'm in charge. No, he was showing up because he wanted to serve. He wanted to minister. He wanted to impart to them some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Now, these gifts aren't the specific gifts of the Spirit that we see listed out. This is just, I wanted to spiritually pour into you. That's what Paul is saying, to strengthen them. But he also knew that it would be mutually beneficial. And so there was this, this, there was this desire in Paul's heart to, yes, to bless, but also to be encouraged, to himself be strengthened. Just being around these believers was going to strengthen Paul's faith. And because he loved this church, he really wanted to get there. Paul's love was evident through his fervent prayers. Paul's love was evident through his desire for fellowship. And lastly, we see that Paul's love was evident through his obligation to preach. Now, I know that's a strong word that we might, we hear the word obligation and it kind of makes us think of the opposite of grace, but that's the word Paul uses here. He says, I am obligated to preach the gospel. And so we see Paul's love was evident through his obligation to preach. The word obligated in verse 14, it means an ower, or it's a person who is indebted. Paul believed that he owed it to people to share the gospel with him. Not from the sense of guilt or the sense of duty. It was because God had graciously saved and transformed Paul, but not so Paul could just hide the gospel away. It's like, oh, this is so awesome. Look what God did for me, and then run and enjoy it by himself. No, God saves us so that we can then be conduits of his grace to other people. God had graciously saved and transformed Paul. Yes, not so that Paul could hide it away and not share the gospel. God had blessed Paul with this amazing good news, and with that came the responsibility of sharing it. 
Paul's like, this is too good. I cannot keep it to myself. And so I feel like I owe it to everybody because this is just so amazing. Imagine you discovered the cure for cancer. Wouldn't you naturally feel like you owe it to the world to give that to them? You wouldn't feel that was a sense of duty or, oh, I've got to do this. You'd be like, I owe it to the world because this is going to be amazing. This is going to change the world. That's what Paul says for all of us who have received the gospel. It's not this just hard, duty-bound sense of, oh, i got to do it, or I'm going to get a call from Capital One. (laughs) No, he's like, I have the best news possible, and God didn't just give it to me. He wants the whole world to get it, so I'm obligated. I am a debtor. I owe it to everybody to give them the most amazing news that they could ever hear. God had blessed Paul with this amazing good news, and with that came the responsibility of sharing it. Now, when we're looking at how Paul prayed for this church in verse 9, I skipped over actually most of that verse because Paul kind of makes what seems to be like this parenthetical statement in verse number 9. But go back to verse number 9 and look at it. He says, God is my witness. And then he just pauses to, to, to share his heart a little bit as he's talking about how radically he prays for the church. He says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news about his son. I love that phrase, whom I serve with my spirit. Paul is describing the way he shares the good news of Jesus. This shows us that Paul was earnest about preaching and that Paul wanted to get to Rome so that he could minister to this church and evangelize the, ro- evangelize the lost, even in Rome, of all places. If I was Paul, there would be a very real part of me that'd be like, yeah, I want to minister, but not there. Uh-uh. <laughs> They're going to kill me. That place stands for the opposite of everything I believe. But Paul was so consumed with what God had done for them, he's like, I I want to even get to the most wicked city in the world. I am eager to preach the gospel even to them. Paul did not approach his life half-heartedly. He served with his spirit. Because of his love for God and his love for people, Paul served with everything in him. I love how he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15. Paul says, therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord seems like a hard left from the love of God, right? But it's not. The fear of the Lord is the overwhelming, often physical response to the greatness and love of God. When Paul says, because we know the fear of the Lord, what he's saying is, I know what it's like to be overwhelmed by the love of God. I know what it's like to rejoice over how loved I am. I know what it's like to tremble over how loved I am. Uh, author Michael Reeves calls it, he wrote a, a great book on the, love, on the fear of God. He calls it Rejoice and Trembling, the Surprising Good News of the Fear of God. Paul's like, because I know that physical, overwhelming response to the goodness and majesty and love of God, therefore, since we know the fear of God, we try to persuade people. God is just so good. God is so overwhelming. And because of that, we, we, we try to persuade people. He goes on to say, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your consciousness. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearances rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, 
The love of Christ compels me, Paul says, because that one, Jesus, died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Paul dedicated his life to spreading the gospel. And he was willing to be spent. He was willing to spend himself so that he could. That's why he takes this moment when he talks about God. Oh, by the way, I serve him with my whole spirit, with everything that I am, telling of the good news about his son. That's why in 2 Corinthians, he's like, I know the fear of God. And because of that, I preach. I'm constrained by the love of God. I'm compelled by the love of God. And because of that, I preach. After considering all that God had done done for him, he could do nothing but serve his Savior. He's like, I don't have any other option. I don't have any other choice. This is the only thing that makes sense. How could I do anything but serve God, but give my whole self to serving the risen Savior? And because of this obligation, because of this sense of I owe it to everybody, Paul says, I want to have a fruitful ministry in Rome also. I can't wait to get up there in that wicked, pagan, awful city that's taking away all of our rights, that won't even let us live in this city. I can't wait to get up there and start spreading the good news. Paul didn't look at the city of Rome as the enemy of his faith and run away from it. He saw a great need, and he was eager to get there and to preach because he believed he owed it to them. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of days I get overwhelmed by everything happening in our state and our country, and I just want to say, peace out, I'm going to go live in the mountains, right? <laughs> I just I want to pull a Ron Swanson and go live in a cabin in the woods and just be like an ostrich, stick my head in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist. But that wasn't the heart of Paul. He actually wanted to go to the very capital of this pagan empire because he believed he owed it to them to preach the gospel. He wasn't like, well, you guys are going to get what you got coming. <laughs> like, you deserve it. <laughs> no, he's like, I owe it to them to give them the good news of my Lord and Savior. Would God give us this kind of earnest desire for our city, our state, and our country? Would to God that the Fresno Church would be a group of people who say, you know what? It looks like it's all going to hell in a handbasket, but if it's going to, it's going to do so over our spent bodies because these people need Jesus and we love them. Now in chapter 1, we also see a few other things that motivated Paul and his earnest desire to preach. We see so much when he says just the phrase, I'm obligated. But when Paul describes this ministry of the apostles in verse 5, He's describing not just his ministry as an apostle, but all the ministries of the, of the apostles. He says that he was driven by the glory of the name of Jesus. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 5, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. Paul was obligated by the glory of God. Paul said God's name is so great, I can't do anything but preach about it. The name of Jesus is so great, it was so compelling to Paul that his primary motivation, that it, the name of Jesus, the glory of God, was his primary motivation for living and for serving and for preaching and ultimately for dying. Jesus was so big in Paul's eyes that he just had to tell everyone about him. <laughs> He's like, how, how could how I not? Like when we get excited about something, we love to tell people about it, don't we? Like... My small group bought me a barbecue, and last Sunday, 
I made some amazing steaks on it. Like, I'm going to toot my own horn. It was good. It blessed my soul, right? Like, when we have, a, when we have that type of experience, we want to talk about it. Because praising that experience is part of the fulfillment of that experience, right? It's not the same if we keep it to ourselves. Well, that is how it is to be when we live for the glory of God. When Jesus is so big in our eyes, we can't help but tell people about it. We can't help but say, look, this has changed my life. I don't know about you, but this literally has transformed me. And this is what God's word says. And Jesus is so big and he's so awesome. I just got to tell you. Paul was obligated by the glory of God. Jesus was so big in Paul's eyes. He's like, how can I do anything but? How can I do anything but but spend my life for the glory of his name? Paul says his ministry is for the sake of the name of Jesus. Because Jesus is glorious. Paul spread Jesus' good news with his whole being. I pray that we would more and more, and I believe we are, but I pray that more and more we would become a church who continues to prize the name of Jesus to the point it is the consuming force in our lives. That we would live to serve and to tell others of his name. And when we go to work, we don't go to primarily earn a paycheck. We go to primarily lift the name of Jesus. And our work is not driven by the income it provides as much as it's driven by the glory of Jesus. I pray that we view our jobs as a way to magnify his name. I pray that we view our relationships as a way to magnify his name. God, would you make the Fresno Church a group of people who live, breathe, work, serve, love, and die for the glory of the name that is above every name. Paul was obligated to live out his purpose in life for the sake of the name of Jesus. But we also see in verses 14 and 15 that Paul was obligated by the need of all people. Look at verse 14 and 15. Paul says, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Warren Wearsby said about this verse, the Greeks considered every non-Greek a barbarian. Talk about racist. <laughs> like if you weren't a Greek, you are a barbarian. Steeped in centuries of philosophy, the Greeks saw themselves as wise and they had attained knowledge and they loved to learn new knowledge and they loved to ponder ancient philosophy, but they saw themselves as wise and everyone else as foolish. But Paul felt, Warren Wearsby says, an obligation to all men just as we need to fill a burden for the whole world. Paul was an equal opportunity gospel giver. <laughs> he was like, I'm not picking and choosing. I, I'm not picking the certain demographic of people to reach out to with the gospel of Jesus to build my own little kingdom. Paul's like, I don't care how society views you. I'll tell you about Jesus. I don't care if they look at you as wise. I don't care if they look at you as foolish. I don't care if they look at you as society's elite or the group of society everybody wants to look down on. I don't care if you're the majority or you're the minority. Paul says, I am obligated to give everyone the gospel. So Paul was driven by the need of all people. Because as we're going to see in the coming chapters, every person, regardless of how much money they make, what their race is, what side of the tracks they come from, what they've done in their life, we're going to see that everybody needs a Savior. All of us stand equally guilty before a holy and righteous God. And because of that, Paul was obligated by the need of all people. It didn't matter to him if you were educated or uneducated, rich or poor, society's elite or not. Paul wasn't targeting the rich to fund his mission. 
Paul wasn't strictly ministering to the poor so that he could look better. Paul wanted to give the gospel to everyone. Paul was eager, I love that word, to preach to everyone because he believed that he was indebted to everyone. The word eager means forward in spirit. It means predisposed or ready and willing. This tells us that preaching the gospel was Paul's natural inclination. Now, I don't think Paul was obnoxiously awkward about it, right? Like, we don't want to flip to that side of the extreme where we're like, yes, everybody owes the gospel, and we're just right in our face with the cashier at the gas station. If you were to die today, do you know for sure heaven would be your home? Do you, do you, do you? Say this prayer, and you'll be good. Like, we don't want to be obnoxious or awkward about it. But there should be an eagerness to it. There should be a readiness to give the gospel. There should be a willingness to give the gospel. When we read about Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, we can see how he often varied his approach depending on who he would talk to. Paul would use wisdom to know how to present the gospel depending on who he was talking to. He didn't just get up on a soapbox and start preaching at every person he saw. He was wise. He was smart about it. But whether the person was considered wise or foolish, Paul wasn't any more worthy of the gospel than the people he encountered, and so he made sure that he would give the gospel to everybody. God had blessed Paul with the gospel, and because God had blessed him with it, he wanted his life to be a conduit of the good news to everyone he could. Paul's love, not only for the church in Rome, but also for the people in Rome, is evident because he had such a strong desire to see them come to Jesus. This was about evangelism and spiritual formation. He wanted to see people come to saving faith, and he also wanted to have a fruitful ministry among the church, among the believers. One of the first Baptist missionaries was a man named Adoniram Judson, and he served in the country of Burma. Before he had gone to his field, he had fallen in love with a girl named Anne Hasselton, who shared his love for the nations, who shared his love to be a missionary. And he wanted to ask her father's permission to, mar- to marry her. And so he wrote uh, her father a letter. And we still have it in history, and I'm going to read it to you. In his letter, he said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to foreign dangerous lands and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and maybe even a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing in mortal souls, for the sake of the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from lost nations, saved through her witness. Now, as a dad of two daughters, I've got a lot of mixed feelings about that, okay? Like, if some guy writes me that letter, I'm like, bro, be the assistant pastor here for a little bit first, right? But what I love about that is it shows a picture of a life consumed by Jesus, I, I understand our, our default might be to look at that and be like, oh, I don't know. But when you're consumed by Jesus, let's go. That, that, that's, what, that's the life of Christians we see throughout the New Testament. And I wonder how different our lives would look 
if we were driven by the love of God and the glory of God the way Paul was. A love that is driven by a heart of gratitude towards God that constantly prays. Just, just think about prayer for a moment. When we pray because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we get to walk into the very throne room of God. That's not hyperbole. That's not dramatic preacher language. That's the spiritual reality of what prayer is. Imagine if we were so driven by the glory of God and the love of God and the, people of, the love for the people of God and the lost nations that we would be a people who constantly pray, who would go into the presence of God and beg for God to work and ask God, would you save people? Would you strengthen our church? Would your name be big in the city of Fresno and in the state of California and in the country of the U.S. of A. and all around the world? When we pray, we get to go into the very throne room of God. And Romans 8 tells us, we're going to get to this, that when we pray, the Holy Spirit helps us pray. When we pray, we pray to God and Jesus, our big brother, intercedes for us. So even in times when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, let me help you. I don't fully have that all figured out as to what that looks like. Like, does he fix our prayers as they go up when we don't know what to pray? Does he just pray what we should pray? I, I, I don't know. His groanings can't be uttered, Romans tells us, so I don't know that we'll ever fully have it figured out. But what an amazing picture, right? God, the Holy Spirit, helps us pray. Jesus, our big brother, is interceding for us, and we get to go into the very throne room of God. If we believe the glory that we see in prayer to the point where we consistently and radically prayed, oh, how different our lives would look. How different our church and our city would look. If we would just go to God and say, God, would you please? And I'm talking to myself. As your pastor, this convicts me. Because like all of you, there's lots of days where I go to pray and my mind's just gone. And muscle memory just pulls out your phone and you start scrolling and you're like, what, what am I doing? Like, pray. Would to God that we would be a church so driven by and consumed by the glory of God and the love of God that we just pray. That we pray for the nations, that we pray for our church, that we pray God would save people. That his kingdom would advance on earth as it is in heaven. That we would pray like Jesus prayed in John 17. He didn't pray in John 17 that he, God the Father would give his disciples easy circumstances. He prayed for those first 12 disciples, and when he prayed, he said, God, would you keep them safe? Would you protect them through it? Would you protect their faith through it? Would you keep them close to you through it? Strengthen them through the persecution. And then he prays the same thing for all the saints. Like, Lord, help, he prays, God the Father, would you help them to see the glory that we had before the foundation of the world? Help them to experience that glory. Help them to experience the unity you and I have before the foundation of the world. Help them to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to go out and to minister in dark times, to minister in dangerous times, to minister in places that it's not safe for them. Shoot, just pray what Jesus prayed in the model prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, holy, magnified be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you realize how radical and dangerous that prayer is? Would to God that we would be a people who believe that we can pray that and that God wants us to pray that and that God will answer us when we do pray that.
would we have a love that is driven by a heart of gratitude for God and constantly praise? What to God that we would have this type of love that compels us into spirit-filled fellowship that offers deep encouragement and is so encouraging to our faith that it actually strengthens our faith. This might not be the most theologically correct thing to say, but it makes us better Christians. It makes us more like Jesus. This love that just compels you to get with other believers. This love that compels you, I've got to show up on Sunday. I've got to get to my small group. I need it and they need me. Not because I'm great or because they're great, but because we are walking in the spirit together. A love that compels us into spirit-filled fellowship. A love that is compelled to give people the gospel and eager, predisposed, willing and ready. Like when the spirit says, talk to that guy. It's not even a second thought. You just talk to that guy. Because when the spirit leads you to share the gospel with someone, that means the Spirit's working in that person's life, and that means you get to go then and be a co-laborer together with God. Now, the Spirit might not be telling you that, so don't work where He's not, but as we yield to the Spirit and as we are ready and eager to preach to the God, I promise you the Spirit's going to say, that's the person I'm working in, and that's the person I'm working in, and that's the person I want you to go share the good news of Jesus with. And you might fumble through it. It might be an awkward gospel presentation. You might forget verses and stumble over your words, and you might think, that was a complete and total waste of time, but we have no idea what God is working. He promises His word will never return void. Would we be a people who actually believe that? A people that is so compelled, so consumed, so driven by the love of God and the glory of God and a love for people that we are eager and ready and willing and obligated to share the good news of Jesus. Now, growing in this type of love is the process of sanctification. None of us are going to walk out these doors and nail it. None of us are going to walk out these doors and think, man, I was just like Jesus today. If you think that, you got it wrong because you're being proud. <laughs> this is the journey of our lives is growing in this type of love. We have good seasons and then we have seasons where we struggle. But I'm proposing these questions this morning as a means to call all of us, myself included, to a higher way of living, to a higher form of love than what our flesh naturally defaults to. I mean, if you've been on social media for five minutes this week, you've seen how people just default to their sides. They default to their camps, and then they just like to throw stones at the other side. Would to God that we would be a people who live a higher form of love that says, you know what? I'm going to break down those walls. I'm going to go to the other camp, and I'm going to love them ridiculously just like Jesus did. I'm going to love the snot off of them. I'm going to love the sin out of them because they need Jesus, and I'm no better than they are. I, need to be, I needed to be saved just like they do. I'm proposing these questions to us this morning because I want to call all of us, myself included. I'm up here, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you guys in this. I want to call us to a higher way of living. The type of love that we see Jesus consistently display. The type of love that bothered the religious conservative people, the Pharisees. The type of love that was willing to get down with broken people. And say, yeah, sin has wrecked havoc on your life, but I'm right here with you. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Paul's example shows us of what a life dedicated to our Savior looks like. This message isn't about, look how great Paul is. This message is about, look how great Jesus is. And what Paul does is he shows us, this is what a life looks like that is consumed by the love of Jesus. 
And so as we surrender to the spirit of Jesus, it's my prayer that all of our lives would more and more declare the glory of God by pointing people towards his majesty. It's my prayer that this church would be so consumed, that I would be so consumed by the love of Jesus that when outsiders, people who are not a part of the faith, people who are not saved, look at the people of Fresno Church, they say, man, there's something different. I don't agree with them on a lot of things, but I can't argue with the way they're living. I can't argue with the way that they're loving. I can't argue with their generosity. I can't argue with their strength in difficult times and their consistency through difficult days. I can't, I can't argue with that. There's something different. That's what it means to glorify God with our lives. And then as people look at our lives, they don't see how great we are. They see Jesus. And so when they look at our lives, we can say, it's all him. It's all Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. He's my Savior, and he wants to be yours too. As we surrender to the Spirit, may our lives declare the glory of God by pointing people towards his majesty. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us according to the riches of your glory and how rich it is. I pray that, you would, that we would be strengthened with your power, the power that rose Jesus from the dead, the power of the Spirit that is ours in Christ. Lord, I pray that we as a Fresno Church would believe that, how different that would be, how different my life would be if I genuinely believed I have the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead permanently indwelling me. I pray that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner beings through your spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, so that Christ could begin to dwell in the lost hearts through faith. I pray that we would be rooted and firmly established in your love, the love of Jesus. And as we're consumed by the love of Jesus and as we are established in it and rooted in it, I pray that that love would spill over into our fellow church members and that we as a church would continue to be rooted and firmly established in your love as it flows down from us through each other so that we could comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of your love. I pray that we would know your love that surpasses knowledge. Our minds cannot comprehend it, but we pray that they would so that we could be filled with all the fullness of you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts to your loves, to your love, and that we would believe you have given us everything we need to be witnesses of Jesus. That's not a question we have to ask. That's not a, a supply we have to ask for. It's a promise we need to believe. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us into believing that. We ask all this because you're able to do above and beyond what we ask or think. According to the power that works in us, to you be glory in this church, in the global church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever.